Okay, we are looking at Isaiah 40, verse 9. And uh, last year, one of the things we did, well, not one of the thing we did for Advent uh, was go through the sermon, uh, the, the texts rather, uh, for Handel's Messiah. And uh, that's what we're picking up with again this year. And um, I, I got that idea from John Newton because uh, he was concerned about what he saw going on with Handel's Messiah, not so much in terms of he didn't like the Messiah, but that people were missing the message of the Messiah. They were caught up in the beauty of the piece of music and missing the Messiah himself. So, um, 40, verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to yourself. Kindle your fire within us and carry us away. Let us smell your fragrance and taste your sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side as we hear your word this morning. Amen. 2020. It's been a grand one, hasn't it? We've uh, experienced uh, an impeachment process. Uh, We've experienced... uh, COVID protocols, uh, some of which seem to change on a nearly daily basis and uh, often confuse, confound, and annoy us greatly. Uh, We've experienced limited travel, and then you have to quarantine when you get wherever you're traveling. There are the burdens of work, the burdens of time. Uh, We've seen Early this summer, the the reports were 100,000 small businesses closing, period. And that was before the riots hit and closed many other businesses permanently as well. We've seen a rise in depression. Uh, Amongst teenagers, it doubled. And that's only what we know about because sometimes people hide it. We've seen suicides rise. We've seen people not be treated for cancer and, any other, and many other diseases as well. And here we are. It's time for Christmas. This is a message that comes to us. And, well, we are in many ways in a huge mess. Are our problems like those the real problem? Or the main problem? Or is there something else that's a bigger problem for us? In a sense, we go to the first verse of this particular chapter, which we didn't read. Uh, But we see that Isaiah has been prophesying. This begins this whole section about the coming servant of the Lord. And this is about the message that the servant of the Lord is going to bring, that he's going to restore God's ruined people. 
And I think that's important for us to recognize the reality that he's speaking to people who are going to be ruined. This is the reason why they needed comfort. Because soon they're going to go into exile. They're going to go into exile because they have sinned greatly, but in the process of the defeat and exile, they're going to be sinned against in many ways. They're going to be ruined. But we need to recognize, we need to step back from this promise of this exile that Isaiah has been talking about that would be fulfilled in 586. We need to step back from that and we need to recognize the original exile. That this exile uh, that Isaiah speaks of is a reflection or an echo of the great exile that takes place in Genesis 3. It's the exile of all exiles. Where Adam and Eve, who have been enjoying God's presence within the garden, they have disobeyed God, and as a result of their disobedience, they have been removed from the garden. And we see in, in Genesis 3 that the way back into the garden, the way back to the tree of life, has been barred by the angel with the flaming sword. And so humanity has been separated, exiled from the presence of God because of its sin. And so what we're going to see unfold in the life of Judah is merely another expression of that great exile that took place. We need to reckon with the reality that sin brings consequences. And so we see that Judah had flirted with other gods. They had sometimes practiced the worship of those other gods, and sometimes they had brought the worship of those gods, those practices, into the worship of Yahweh in syncretism. But it wasn't just about the forsaking of God, the apostasy uh, that they committed. It was it, That apostasy resulted in a lack of concern for justice. People were exploited. People were oppressed. Uh, the elites of their culture lived really well, but at the expense of the average person. Sin ran rampant. Let's fast forward to the present time for a moment. I want to warn us because the church in America flirts with power. The church in America flirts with prestige. The church in America flirts with prosperity. We think that somehow the American dream is the gospel dream. When in fact it's the world, the flesh, and the devil in many ways. There's nothing wrong with prosperity. There's nothing wrong with having status. There's nothing wrong with experiencing power and using it for the benefit of others. But when those are your goals, it becomes idolatry. And that's what I'm concerned about as I think about the American church. Not only that, but sin is tolerated. We understand when sin is tolerated in the world. But when sin is tolerated in the church... It's a different story. And so we see the, that the church is increasingly less willing to discipline its members because 
of sin, particularly but not exclusively sexual sin. So Judah sinned, similar to how we sin. And the, but we also see in the life of Judah that the sin of others would create misery for them and for us. The judgment of God was going to come upon them through uh, Babylon, but Babylon was not going to do it justly nor fairly. They would have their own sins to answer for in how they treated the, the people of Judah. Babylonian cruelty was a reality. And so when we see this larger picture of, of first how sin itself, the sin of Judah, has ruined the people so that they're not revealing the glory of God, but then the Babylonian exile humbles, ruins, and destroys them in another fashion because they did not repent of their sin. And so as I look upon our landscape I see that atheists, activists, and politicians are moving to make persecution not simply personal, but also political, public. And the church, I believe, will begin to experience a great deal of misery because she has not repented of her addiction to power, to prestige, and to prosperity. But we have to see this again, that larger picture. Precisely because we're cut off from the tree of life due to the sin of Adam, people are weary. Uh, they're weary due to their own sin, and its consequences. They're weary due to the sin of others and its consequences for them. In other words, what I'm saying to you this morning is that COVID is not your biggest problem. What I'm saying to you is who is or isn't at the White House isn't your biggest problem or blessing. We discover that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart as someone else has once said. And so the human heart experiencing this struggle, experiencing the consequences of sin, seeks satisfaction in other places. And so we see in the midst of all that's going on, rise in various addictions, including opioid addiction. We see people feeling powerless, the rise of political polarization. We see the rise, the renewal of, of racism and riots taking place within our land. We see the, the corruption in so many places. These are the surface sins of the sinful heart. Like Judah, I think the American church is largely a people who have been ruined by sin. Our own sin. The sin of others. And particularly, 
the sin of Adam. And so our problem isn't our problems, but sin. What is the answer to the problem of sin out there and in here? Not just here, but here, the heart. Well, the exile resulted in a measure of pardon for sin that was connected to the punishment that Jerusalem had received. That was part of the message of comfort, to speak tenderly to Jerusalem, to cry to her because her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And that might sound strange to us, that talk about double for her sins, as though God is unjust, but the idea... So I'm told, and I'm going to use a different piece of paper so I don't ruin my sermon notes. So it's folded, doubled, or doubled over, folded, so that everything matches perfectly, which I can't do because even when I was in elementary school, I couldn't fold a piece of paper to save my life. Okay, I'm, I'm not the guy to make, like, you know, airplanes out of paper. So I'll leave that to other people. But the idea here, is that God is just. They have received from an earthly measure uh, the proper punishment for their sins. Their, their, their exile is going to end. They're going to be brought back to the land. They're going to be restored. But the solution is not simply the change of circumstances by going back to the promised land. Put another way, the solution is not a vaccine. The solution is not a different political result. Because the problem is not COVID. The problem is not political. The problem is sin. And so, what they're to declare is an interesting message. Behold your God. Look! Your God is coming. The God they worshipped, the God they were supposed to worship, the God who had sent them into exile through the Babylonians, that God was going to come. And that God was going to come to bring comfort and to joy to a ruined people by restoring them. John Piper has an excellent book, that reminds us by its title, God is the gospel. The gospel is not simply a set of propositions, although it, conclu- it includes propositions or ideas. It's not a method. It's a person. The gospel is God giving himself to us who don't deserve it. Only because of Christ and Him crucified. And so Isaiah here is drawing their attention back to their God because their God was going to come for them and He has come for us. This is a promise that was not fulfilled in, uh, when they returned from the exile, but one that would be fulfilled in a greater fashion with the birth of Jesus. But he notes these things. 
in the following verse. The Lord God will come with might. And so, behold your God who is a mighty, victorious warrior. A God who is not defeated by the Babylonians, but rather one who looks at the raging of the nations and laughs. He's powerful. But he's not just powerful. Because Isaiah says that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so this God is going to come not simply as a victorious king, a mighty warrior. He comes as that, in a sense, for his people against his enemies, but Towards his people, his stance is as a shepherd, a gentle, good shepherd. He is both powerful and gentle, mighty and yet kind. And he uses that strength for his people's well-being. And so there's a sense in which when Isaiah says, Behold your God, he's also saying, Know your God. Don't you see him, but recognize him for who he is. Don't you see him, love him. Reading uh, Herman Bovink in talking about Revelation, and it's on my blog, and one of the things that uh, he gets at in a number of different angles, and which, ought, which is important to this particular topic this morning, is that knowing God is not something that is learned through speculation or philosophy. Knowing who God is isn't something that you derive from science. Knowing God is about Revelation about believing that which God reveals about himself and knowing that that revelation that you need to believe is found in one place, which would be the Scriptures. And so knowing God becomes, it becomes important to know Scripture. And so when, when Isaiah says, behold your God, what should strike them is the best, most amazing revelation of who God was in the Old Testament, which was to Moses on the mountain. Where we see that God is full of mercy, God is full of, of grace, that he's full of steadfast love, that he's there to forgive iniquity and trespasses, and yet amazingly, he does not let the guilty go free. This is the height of the revelation of God, as I said, in the Old Testament. It, it marks the whole rest of the Old Testament. You find it in the numerous Psalms. You see it again and again in the prophets. Because that was God declaring who he was to Moses. 
not simply Moses sitting in a field or on a mountaintop thinking about who God may or may not be. And so when we're called to behold Jesus, who comes in the flesh, we recognize that he fully manifests who God is. He reveals his mercy, his grace, that steadfast love, that forgiveness, as well as that justice by being the atonement for our sins upon the cross. So we say, you want to know who God is, we we don't just point to the mountain, we point to the cross. But who receives this message of a cross? It's the weary people, the ruined people, who've been prepared by God to welcome this one who becomes a fountain of mercy precisely because they recognize they need mercy. The have-it-all-together people don't see a need for mercy. They may see a need for affirmation about how good they are. But they don't see the sense of Christ is my only hope. It's only the ruined people, the weary people, that can see that. Christ has come, but we live in between the times. There's the already and the not yet. We see this pointed out in Hebrews 9, for instance, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the already. Christ has borne our sin. We have forgiveness. But there's also the not yet. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so as people who who have experienced this forgiveness because of Christ on the cross, we also wait for him to come and to restore his people, to restore the kingdom, which was the question of the disciples. When? When I come back. Is when the kingdom will be restored. And so weary people continue to wait for the Son to return to save those whose sins he has already borne. And so the only answer to sin is the Son who came and is coming. And that's what Christmas reminds us of. Or that's what Christmas is intended to remind us of. Well, so what? That brings us to the rest of verse 9. Isaiah speaks to Zion, a.k.a. Jerusalem. They're used in parallel there. They're they're the same entity in this particular case, Okay, through the parallelism of this particular verse. And what he says to Zion is, go up on a high mountain. Why? As a herald of the good news. So both Zion and Jerusalem are are spoken of as heralds of the good news. But heralds need a place to proclaim good news. 
And Isaiah says something interesting. He goes, says, go to the mountaintop, not the city square. Go to the mountaintop where you can be heard at a distance. The sound could be heard in the valley if shouted from the mountain. But notice this. What, what I want you to see is that these ruined people, because they've been restored through forgiveness, are now rejoicing and they can't shut up. If you are, are a ruined person who's been restored, there ought to be rejoicing. Not simply in here, where it's safe, but there on the mountaintop, where sometimes it's not always safe. We're intended to herald the good news that Jesus has come, that Jesus is the Messiah, not simply from the pulpits, but wherever we happen to be. Herald this good news of all that is done. Herald this news of the advent, the, the incarnation. Herald this news about Jesus who obeyed perfectly for us. Herald this news of Jesus who died to bear our sins. Herald this news of Jesus who was raised again from the dead so that we, we might have newness of, of life. Herald this news of Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father from which he pours out his Holy Spirit so that you can rejoice. That gift of the Holy Spirit. By which comes Jesus himself to apply the redemption he's bought for us. But also to give us that power we need to bear witness or to herald. See, it's not in your own strength that this happens. It's only as you're living in dependence upon the strength of God through the Holy Spirit that you're going to bear witness. Because your remnant of sin will resist that at every step. Lift up your voice, Isaiah says. Lift it up with strength. Lift it up. Fear not. This is a message that needs to ring out. And, and Isaiah, I think, is, is recognizing their weakness, recognizing their fear, and he's calling them to trust in God as opposed to trusting in themselves. Precisely because other ruined people need that message. Other ruined people need to know that Jesus is mighty and can restore. But not just mighty, but merciful to deal gently with them in the midst of their ruin. People burdened by sin, burdened by the consequences of sin, need to know of this burden-bearing Savior that we have. And as I mentioned from Acts, that is why he pours out that gift of the Spirit to us, so that we who are weak can have strength to proclaim, so that we who are fearful can have courage to proclaim. This is not a new message. 
Isaiah himself is not proclaiming a new message. This return from the exile, we read about that from Deuteronomy 30, didn't we? That that return from exile that we see prophesied in Deuteronomy 30, which is fulfilled with the Cyrus edict uh, to return to the promised land, that that is part of the greater return from exile that is going to be, that was only accomplished in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because it's only in that ministry that the, what we see in Deuteronomy 30 takes place, the circumcision of the heart that God gives to us and to our children so that we begin to seek God with all of our hearts and find him. And so we need to tell people about or call people to repent and return from that great exile because of the work of Jesus, that there is a way back to the garden and we're on our way. We need to call them, as James 4 says, to draw near to God, knowing that he will then draw near to you. Revelation 22 reminds us, or gives us a picture of the reality of the return to the garden that takes place after the return of Jesus. Because Jesus, in that picture of the new Jerusalem that is descended from the heavens, Jesus restores access to the tree of life for all of his people who repented. They're restored. They're refreshed. The leaves are used for the healing of the nations. So Advent is good news. (laughs) The beginning of the greatest news. So spread the news. So people can repent. So if we think of these three threads, these these answers to these three questions, we recognize that we are to spread the news that Jesus restores hope to a weary world. Yes, sin ruins everything. Not just 2020. We sin, they sin. The cycle of sin ruins families, it ruins neighborhoods, it ruins nations. The particular problems that we experience and and see on the, the front page of the news are all ultimately problems of the heart. There are ruined people in ruined places that need the comfort of Christ. But they will, if we don't offer them Christ, they will continue to look for that comfort in all the wrong places. As refreshed people, we need to bring this message that Jesus has come to restore what sin has ruined to those ruined people in ruined places like Tucson. Have you received this message? Do you spread this message? Or do you need the Holy Spirit to work profoundly to free those lips? And maybe that's where you need to start praying. Free my heart, Jesus, so that I speak of you. Let's pray. Father,
We rejoice that we don't have to remain in exile. We rejoice that Jesus has come to restore us to your presence, your blessing, your kindness. Father, we're not going to tell anyone unless we believe it. And so I ask that you would be uh, sinking that message that understanding of who you are from the scriptures deeper into our hearts so that our lips are freed because our hearts have been freed. That we would not be enslaved to our fears, that we would not be enfeebled by our weakness, but that Christ through the Spirit would indeed strengthen us for the task and give us courage for the task. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.